All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by the Matt Levine of crypto, the one and only newsletter writer extraordinaire, Byron Gilliam. Byron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Um, just for the record, I'm the only person that calls myself the, Mike, uh, the Matt Levine of crypto. Uh, and I think it also it tells you something about the year that we've had that uh, he's that Matt Levine himself has spent so much time talking about crypto that uh, he is definitely, you know, Matt Levine is definitely the Matt Levine of crypto. Well, I think I, I go through life basically hoping one day to just be referenced as uh, the poor man's Matt Levine. And I think you've already achieved that title. So <laughs> it's it's a huge feather in your cap, Byron. So I'll take it. Um, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, all right. So look, we're recording this on December 19th. I think it's a pretty appropriate way to start this conversation by just doing a bit of a retrospective on the year, right? It's been a pretty record year in terms of poor performance, both for stocks and bonds. For, for those of you who don't know, Byron is actually an equities trader for the vast majority of his career uh, before uh, leveling up into BlockWorks. <laughs> so Byron, you've seen a whole bunch of different market conditions. I mean, what do you, what do you make of everything this year to just you know set that question very broadly to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, okay, here's, here's the most insightful thing that I'll probably ever say, uh, which is that <laughs> the, uh, the stock market hit its all time high on the first trading day of this year, uh, which I look back and I think is, has never happened before. So all of the statistics about like, this is the worst year since whatever, whatever, it's most of those I think are largely just because the market peaked right on the first day of the year. So all of the year, you know, all of the year to date statistics are just completely skewed. Um, so if I think about it, just like anecdotally, uh, this is, you know, nothing like as bad as, uh, you know, 2001 or 2008, nine, uh, or 2020, like everybody can remember 2020. Um, so as far as bear markets go, like this was not a bad one. It was only in bear market territory. Like we were only down more than 20% in the S and P for like four weeks or something like that. Like it's, mm. it only even barely qualifies as a bear market in equities. It was worse in bonds. Um, but bonds too, and they didn't, you know, bonds didn't peak exactly on the first day of the year, but, um, you know, the two year, two year yield was like 70 bips or something in on January 2nd. Um, uh, so, you know, it doesn't, it did not seem like a bad year to me, uh, for one thing. Um, and it's kind of surprising that it was as that it feels that way because you know if you the fed it was the fastest uh rate height cycle in history like you know fed funds i think was zero percent of the in january still mm -hmm. um and uh you know we had inflation peaked at nine percent at one point and if you know if you told me those two things and on january 2nd i would have expected uh, markets to be have been a lot worse than they were well, one of the one of the interesting facets of how markets have performed this year right, is the S and P. I think year to date is down something like nineteen percent, and TLT, which is you know the long bond, essentially is down about twenty five percent. So I think one of the things that's caused a little bit of pain and what people might not have necessarily seen coming this year is both of those assets falling at the same time. And when historically bonds are a hedge for for stocks. So if you've been sitting in either 60-40 right, on sort of the more retail side of things, or if you've been running uh, some sort of version of risk risk parity, which is basically, you know, the criticism is it's, it's a levered bond portfolio, then this has been a pretty painful year for you. What do you think about those two? You know, anything to point out about this kind of uh, idea that 60-40 is dead or both of these assets falling at the same time? 
Well, hopefully 6040 will be back now that you can, you know, you can get a reasonable yield on your bonds. Like I, you know, for my personal portfolio, uh, I bought bonds this year for the first time since like 2009. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, like, like, uh, uh, government bonds. Um, you know, I like, if you came into this year long, government bonds i feel like you weren't totally paying attention because there were you just were not you just were not getting any any i mean that's unfair a lot of people that i mean people were buying that um that austrian 100 year bond have you looked at that it was yeah. uh, uh i think it was issued at you know at par with a 0% yield i think and it's trading mm. at like 6 now you know it's gone from 100 to 6 i think um mm. so that's unfair that people were long bonds for whatever reason um but i think hopefully this you know that that was the that was the anomaly really and and it seems like now we're you know we're more normalized where you can get at least a little bit of yield on your bonds you know i think when you're trying to formulate some sort of framework for how assets are going to perform moving forward, you have to be thinking somewhat about inflation there. So if I had to kind of divide the world into two camps, you know, I'd love to know where you fall on this spectrum, which is, okay, you know, the Fed is back in control, they care about price stability, again, and they're going to basically continue raising rates until Fed funds is consistently above inflation, and we're going to take a huge bout of deflation, it's going to be a bear market for a couple of years, but we're going to sort of take our medicine and the Fed has the wherewithal and the the tools at their disposal to do that. Then on the other hand, you know, there's kind of this idea that inflation, if you look at it historically, it is notoriously sticky to <laughs> to stamp out, right? Typically what you get in, at least in the 1940s or the 1970s in the US, you get sort of the stop-start inflation where we think everything is going to be fine and inflation heads back to the Fed's target, but then it we haven't really stamped out the inflationary impulse and then it kind of rockets back up again. Where on those two spectrums of Fed's going to fight this effectively and we're going to get deflation versus we've got this kind of potentially secular, very sticky inflation, like where do you sort of fit on that on that spectrum? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm more worried about the downside. Um, I, I feel like the uh, the long term trends are still deflationary, um, uh, and yeah, I just worried that the that we're going to overshoot um, on on the downside. Uh, but that's like, yeah, I. I have no reasonable track record in predicting these like giant structural things. These are things that people are going to have to write doctoral theses about in, you know, 10 years after the fact, you know, people are still arguing about the seventies inflation. Like people, you know, the, the <laughs> academics are still arguing about what, what caused and what ended the 1970s, uh, you know, inflation boom bust. Uh, so, you know, the idea of like predicting the next 10 years uh, of inflation is really, uh, you know, an, an active, uh, hubris, I think. So I'm not particularly going to try. Uh, but just if I if I had to pick a side, I would I would be more worried about deflation. On the other hand, I mean, I could definitely see the other side of the argument. Like, uh, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of um, uh, you know the structural stuff in in the other direction as, as well. Like, uh, you know, reshoring. And I was just reading about uh, TSMC building a, a new fab in Arizona, which has got you know they're building you know people are building fabs in places for non-economic reasons which is uh which is which is inflationary um so i can i can see the other side of the argument but just um just instinctively i'm I'm more worried about the downside yeah it's definitely it's not looking like a particularly good yeah it's funny we've been this entire year you know we're talking about you know negative but not ultimately 
drastically bad performance in the stock market. And there's been this sort of ongoing debate of, are we in a recession or most indicators are pointing yes. And some people are firmly, they don't even want to have the conversation. Yes, this is hundred percent a recession, but 2023 certainly is looking like there are at the very least headwinds, you know, to say the least. And, you know, I was, I was reading some of your newsletters from this past week to prepare, to prepare for this conversation. And uh, one thing that I've talked about on this show and that you also uh, talked about in, in your newsletters last week was one other shoe to drop being earnings. You know, we've most of the depression that we've seen in the stock market basically has been a revaluation, right? And that's why the NASDAQ has done worse than the S&P, right? Because that's more interest rate sensitive. It's very, you know, earnings that are, are very far into the future. But what we haven't really seen, honestly, earnings have held up and expectations of earnings have held up pretty strongly going into 2023. Do you expect that to continue or do you think earnings is the next shoe to drop, so to speak? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm, I'm kind of in the soft landing camp uh, for now. Uh, I think just because we're uh, coming from such a high level, uh, you know, there's still a lot of uh, stimulus money around. Um, corporate margins are still really high. Um, there's still pent up demand for things. Uh, and also, uh, you know, inflation is a, is a tailwind for, um, for corporate earnings. Uh, you know, earnings are nominal, right? And, and nominal yeah. numbers are, are going up with, with inflation. Um, so again, this is just a total guess. Uh, you know, I'm, my base case is that we're going to uh, either have a soft landing or a pretty mild recession. Um, doesn't you know an earnings recession? And so I think uh, I think uh, I think corporate earnings will be less bad than people think they are going to be. Um, uh, but that's yeah, that's the main question. You know how how soft is the landing going to be? Is 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 going to be the question for twenty twenty three? I think it's an interesting point as well to just talk about liquidity. I mean, Powell is very focused on even his language, right in. Uh, Fed minutes and, and that sort of thing is very focused on the cost of money and the hiking of interest rates. Whereas I think you could make a pretty strong argument that the quantity of money, the amount of money, so that that number on the Fed's balance sheet is actually maybe the more important thing. Maybe this is my sort of uh, beginner's brain outside mind for, for many things in finance, but it's been, always been a little unclear to me. They've got these two very powerful tools when they're talking about monetary accommodation. One is the price of money. One is the amount I've never been able to really put together a good thesis on which one is ultimately more valuable or important. I, if I was sort of approaching the problem almost from a five-year-old's perspective, I would say the amount of money, you know, because the amount of money is the denominator, which seems a lot more important than the marginal cost of financing a project, right? This is like how it works in the macro textbook, the marginal cost of financing a project at 5% versus 7%, or I'm just not sure that you know, that moves the needle quite as much as changing the whole denominator of, of, uh, of how assets work. But I don't know if you have a more nuanced opinion than I do there. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. There's a quantity of money and the velocity of money, right? And I think, you know, longer term, that's the quantity of money that, that counts, like, you know, mm -hmm. how many dollars are chasing how many goods. Um, and then in the shorter term, the, the velocity of money uh, counts as well, but that is more volatile. Um, <clears throat> um, so yeah, I guess, I guess my my other thought on that is that um, you know everyone was talking about QE, uh, QT is coming, 
until QT started. And then like, I've hardly heard a peep about it since, right? Like, which is, yeah. which is kind of funny, right? Like, uh, you know, you don't, you know, people, we spend all of our time uh, guessing whether Fed funds is going to be like 25 bips this way or 25 bips that way. And, you know, meanwhile, the Fed is doing whatever, 90 billion a month of QT or something like that. I don't even know because nobody ever talks about it. So it's really, yeah. really hard to, to say, like, uh, you know, how, how that change in liquidity is affecting things. It seems like it seems like it's they're not affecting them that much or certainly not as much as people uh, said they were going to. Um, but I don't know. It's really it's really hard to quantify. I'd love to get your thoughts. You know, you wrote actually a great piece a little while ago uh, called In Defense of Arthur Burns, just while we're still on this topic of inflation. So can you give us a, can you give us just sort of the high level overview of what that newsletter said? Um, yeah, so the the standard narrative, obviously, is that uh, Arthur Burns, the Fed chair in the 1970s, was hopefully uh, ho um, hopelessly behind the, the curve on, on interest rates. And um, and as a result, uh, never got inflation under control. And then uh, Volcker came in, uh, was a hardliner, went, uh, you know, took interest rates to 19% or whatever it was. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's what that's what ended the inflation cycle that that seemed otherwise intractable. Um, <clears throat> but there's been a lot of uh, uh, revisionist uh, history on that. And I'm a total sucker for revisionist history. So I can't and, and contrarian takes You know, revisionist history and contrarian takes are like my two favorite things. So I couldn't, you know, I, couldn't <laughs> I couldn't resist agreeing with this. Um, but there's a there's a school of thought um, that uh, what actually uh, killed the 1970s uh, inflation was uh, essentially the price of oil. Uh, you know, there was a, a glut of oil that hit in like 1979 or something like that. And, or, you know, in the very early eighties. Uh, and that was the uh, real reason why inflation ended and not, not Volcker's um, uh, rate hikes. Uh, and you could make the argument that Arthur Burns gets some credit for that uh, because um, by keeping interest rates uh, um, lower than you would otherwise expect them to be, uh, that encouraged the investment in uh, in uh, oil infrastructure. Um, that that um, you know that that encouraged the, su the supply response um, to uh, the spike in oil um, prices and the response the the investment uh, that that um, that that oil producers made in the 1970s created that oil glut and that that's what uh, ended inflation um, you know there are doctoral theses about this you know so you know who knows if that's that's really the real story um, but i think it's relevant to today uh, because you know we all want the fed to to kill inflation by by raising interest rates uh, but to the extent that this this spate of inflation is uh, uh, supply driven you know supply side issues which clearly you know a lot of it is half of it is maybe i think seems like the best es estimate um, you know higher interest rates um, uh, discourage investment and the the only real uh, um, the only real way to fix supply side inflation is with a supply response which requires investment I'm going to actually push back on you and say I'm I'm still more worried about uh, about inflation than deflation. I'd love to get your thoughts on sort of my high level thinking and an argument here. But I think the the reasons why I'm still a little bit worried about sticky or persistent inflation is one, you know, when you establish these sort of secular trends, inflation is a very psychological thing, and that's not a very satisfying answer to a lot of people. But I haven't really 
just in anecdotally my dealings with people living in New York or my friends and things like that, this idea of like crazy wage gains has still been, you know, cemented in a lot of people's heads and people think that's right. And that's a very difficult thing to sort of stamp out. I think one of the biggest, people talk a lot about demographics. I sort of, maybe a slightly more, the, the, the way that the variable that I think is a little bit more important when it comes to inflation is the ability to borrow from low cost labor pools. And I just think the ability to do that is going to be drastically lower moving forward in the future because ultimately employers are going to have much less, um, much less ability to do that with geopolitical tensions. And then I think there's, I kind of sense this shift, uh, you know, capital has been, there's this always this push pull right in between capital and labor. And I sort of think capital has been trouncing labor for the past X many years. Uh, and I think labor is, there's something about inflation that's kind of a political decision. And if you look at the way that our government kind of talks about, um, you know, uh, where I think our government falls on those, uh, you know, on those two sides, I think it's going to start favoring labor over, over capital. So I kind of see these enormous tailwinds for things that produce inflation. Um, and maybe we'll kind of get this, this stop start dynamic where successfully the Fed will try to get up and say, Hey, like we're going to, you know, we're going to fight this, but ultimately in the back of their minds, I also sort of think, Hey, we've got this pile of debt and we got to take care of that somehow. And inflation is probably the easiest way to do that. So those are sort of all the, the pro inflation arguments. I'd be curious if you have any responses or, you know, tell me that I'm thinking about things incorrectly. I don't know. I guess my, my first thought is that labor uh, v capital is kind of a 20th century heuristic, it seems like mm. to me. Um, I think the 21st century uh, is going to be more about AI and stuff, um, mm. you, know, uh, you know, radical productivity gains that we maybe can't totally imagine right now. And, you know, this could be one of the catalysts, um, uh, uh, you know, forcing employers to to invest in AI and factory automation and, and machine learning and whatever um, to deal with shortages of labor instead of just hiring people. They're going to have to invest in, in new technologies and stuff. And that can ultimately be a, a positive thing. Um, I mean, Japan is at a later labor shortage for I don't know how long. Right. And they they don't have any inflation. Um, and I just don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think labor has the, uh, the leverage that it would have done in, you know, the, the middle of the 20th century when it was, when it was more of an issue. Um, it also makes me think of the Yuval Harari, um, uh, thesis that, uh, you know, a lot of the reasons, uh, you know, the, the sort of populist backlash that we've seen over the last few years, one part of that was that the, uh, that labor is getting the sense that they are going to be irrelevant relatively soon that, you know, we're all gonna, you know, we're all going to, we're all going to lose our leverage uh, with employers, because we're all going to be replaced by by AI and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that's a little bit, uh, uh, that's a little bit high level, but I think there's, I think that's probably going to be more of more of a, the, the thing in the 21st century than it was in the 20th century. There's, there's certainly one future where leaders in America, maybe corporate leaders and also political leaders sort of learn the wrong, the lesson that maybe society wouldn't hope that they ultimately learn, right? There's one, there's one case where it's like, yeah, maybe actually, uh, 
capital has been getting the better side of it than labor for a long period of time. And it's finally for time for labor to have its day. That's almost like an underdog story that I think a lot of people would want to believe. And America is going to see wage gains just like it did back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever it was. And, and everything's going to normalize that way. But I can also see it maybe cynical glasses here, a uh, cynical take is that actually employers say, wow, uh, we do not want to, we haven't had to pay, you know, especially on the lower side, the most low income earners in America, we haven't had to pay fair wages in a long period of time. This is ridiculous. We're not going back to this. Now it's time to invest in AI and certainly seeing things like ChatGPT. I gotta be honest, that is a pretty remarkable piece of technology. It's certainly not at a place where it's going to replace uh, you know, content workers or writers or newsletter writers anytime soon. That is, that is for sure, Byron. That is for sure. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, it's, it does seem like, uh, wow. You know, you could imagine with a couple more iterations of this technology that there were certainly some job fields that you thought were going to be the domain of humans and creativity. And I don't know, it sort of does call that all into yeah, question. You could, but you could also say the same thing about, you know, um, you know, typewriters replacing scribes and, 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 uh, automobiles replacing horses and things like that. It'll just create yeah. all kinds of new, new jobs, right? Well, I, you could almost imagine as well that maybe 10 years from now, instead of you and I sitting down and having this conversation between the two of us, really what we do is you and I sit down privately for 30 minutes and feed the right inputs into yeah. chat GBT 10.0. Right. And actually chat GBT spits this thing out. That's looks like you and I talking, but it's really AI and it distills the best part of our, uh, you know, our thoughts makes us both sound smarter and, and look better, which, you know, I'm actually okay with that's, that'd be a fine outcome for the feature. Um, I, I would love to, to get your thoughts. There's, there've been some, there've been some, some pretty stark statements from some pretty large investors this year. And these are guys that you typically wouldn't want to fade. Right. So there are a couple of quotes from guys like, you know, Stan Druckenmiller, you know, we're talking about stocks, but like here, here are two quotes. It's going to sound like I'm determined to get you to say some pessimistic stuff here, but like you, you tell me, right? So Jim Chanos, right? This is a quote. If this was a bottom, it would be the most expensive bottom in modern financial history. And what he's talking about there is price to earnings on the S&P 500. Typically when there's a bottom, it resets. I forget, forget the actual statistics, but it's about 50% lower than it is uh, currently. And then Stan Druckenmiller has this quote where there's a high probability, quote, that the stock market will be flat for an entire decade. And he's also sort of referencing, uh, you know, basically the, the 70s. So I'd be, I'd be very curious, you know, when you hear these guys say these things, obviously some there's some amount of maybe media savvy that's going on there, right? And they kind of understand the headlines that uh, they're trying to generate. But I don't think Stan Druckenmiller, is a, he's, a, he's a pretty solid investor and generally says stuff he means. So when you hear guys say stuff like that, does it make you change your, your viewpoint at all? Do you think there's a chance that the stock market could be flat for, for the next decade? Or what do you think, um, you know, when you hear those sorts of statements? Could be, um, definitely could be. I think the, the, out of the two, the, uh, the, the first one about it would be like the, the most expensive bottom or whatever, whatever. Uh, yeah, it could be, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but this is like, it's such, it's a genuinely unique scenario. Like what is the sample size on, um, uh, you know, bear markets after pandemics with the war in the Ukraine and 9% inflation, the, you know, it's a sample size of zero. Uh, so could this, you know, yeah. could this, this time be different? Yeah. Every single time is different. Like that's one, one thing I've learned in my trading career is that, you know, people always laugh at the, this time is different thing. 
it's different mm-hmm. every single time, you know. Uh, yeah. So I don't, I don't think history is any any great guide on on what's going to happen in the future. Unfortunately, as a as a you know history major in college, I wish that it was more of a guide, uh, but mm-hmm. I just I, I don't think it is. Uh, could the market be unchanged for ten years? That would really surprise me. Um, you know, again because uh, stock prices and earnings are denominated in nominal dollars. Uh, so it's kind of hard to be to be unchanged for, for 10 years unless you start at a just a really high level of valuation. And I think valuation is full, but I don't think it's crazy. It's not like uh, it's not like Nasdaq in, in 2001 or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I would be I would be really surprised if equities were unchanged over the next 10 years. Hmm. Are there any pockets of equities like within the, the broader stock market? I mean, maybe if you even just had to however you want to slice this just in terms of specific sectors, or you just want to say value versus growth, which has basically become sort of industrial versus tech, or I, you know, it, it kind of seemed like there was a period of time where um, people were, you know, the stock market was doing very well right after COVID. And everyone was like, why is the stock market doing so well when the economy is getting absolutely trounced here with these crazy negative GDP prints? And the answer kind of ultimately ended up being, if you look at the composition of the NASDAQ and the S&P, especially just take the S&P, it's mostly tech stocks, right? With Apple being an enormously outsized component. So when you were lowering interest rates, those stocks that were a huge portion of the S&P index were doing particularly well. Now it almost seems like there's this this shift, you know, under and, and uh, tech stocks are getting hammered, but you also see sectors that have been beaten down for the last five years, like energy outperforming and doing extremely well. And they're sort of making up for the, the loss in performance of, you know, the tech sector. So I'm curious if you have any opinions on like any that sort of rotation or if there are any parts of the stock market where you're like, this is actually maybe an interesting spot of opportunity. It feels like the market is going to be less sector and factor driven going forward. Um, you know, it's going to be less momentum versus value and more bottom upish, um, which would mm-hmm. be a good thing. It'd be great for stock pickers and active managers and stuff like that. Um, like, Apple and Microsoft seem really expensive to me. Uh, Google and Facebook seem pretty cheap to me. Um, and that, that to me is more interesting than just by tech or just by value. Uh, so I, I don't have any real prediction on, on which is, you know, which is going to, to win out. But when I just, you know, poke around in the stock market there, I seem to come across a lot of things that seem really cheap, like home builders seem really cheap. Google seems really cheap. Like, so I think there's going to be, uh, you know, plenty of opportunity and it'll probably be more bottom up and less Mm. top down than it has been previously. Mm. Let's talk about, this has been, um, let's talk about your experience this past year in crypto. So, uh, you, you you joined BlockWorks at a very interesting time, right? You kind of saw the, the tail end of a bull market and now uh, into its first bonafide bear market, actually, uh, where things have been sort of down only. And there's been, I mean, very well detailed on this podcast and in your newsletter, but the collapse primarily in, it looks like the, the vector that crypto is super vulnerable in actually was the vector that, you know, all financial infrastructure is vulnerable in, which is just CFI and leverage, right? And there was this sort of hidden systemic leverage. Also, there was an enormous alleged fraud in the form of FTX, that's all being litigated, you know, sort of as we're recording and and speaking. But I'd be curious to just sort of get your view on how you're feeling about all things crypto right now. 
that's, that's are, you, that's are you positive? Are you bearish? Yeah, tell me how you're feeling. Um, uh, I feel pretty good about it. Uh, just for like for a personal reason is that uh, I'm like the biggest like victim sucker for FOMO. I and you know when I started in it and things were like doubling and tripling and quadrupling, like I just I was always like. I hated just missing out on all this stuff. So I'm like personally much more comfortable in a bear market because I don't feel like I'm missing anything, which is great. Um, uh, in terms of big picture, uh, uh, I also think that it's ultimately going to be a good thing for crypto because there was, you know, one of my major takeaways for this year is that there was just way too much money sloshing around in, in crypto. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was counterproductive, like extremely counterproductive. It led to uh, just a lot of bad things with Ponzi's and scams and fraud. Um, <clears throat> and I think there'll be a lot less of that because there's a lot less money uh, sloshing around now. Uh, and, you know, people are going to, you know, the capital is going to have to be allocated a, a lot more smartly and a lot more productively. And, and that should hopefully, you know, over the course of a couple or a few years, that should have, you know, um, produce better outcomes than what we were producing at, at the beginning of this year. Um, so in that sense, I'm, I'm positive on it. Uh, and then in another sense, I haven't really changed my view very much, which is that I still think that um, crypto is not going to be great for investors, even at these much lower prices, um, mm. but that it is going to, you know, create a lot of great things for users. And I think that's, that would be a really good outcome if, if that's correct. Mm. Can you, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with that thesis of yours, can you unpack why is crypto not going to be good for investors? I'm, I'm just skeptical of it of, as an, as an asset class, um, uh, for a bunch of reasons, like you know, one, it you know, it's it's open source software, so it doesn't really lend itself to uh, moats. Like you know, a lot of stock market investing is uh, buying a stock that has a moat and then can just extract rent um, from behind its moat uh, for years and years and years and decades. Um, and that is, you know, crypto does not seem to lend itself to that. Uh, which is great. That's that's a good thing. Um, we don't, you know, we don't like rent extraction. Rent extraction is is bad. Um, uh, for another thing, uh, you know, the uh, the revenues in crypto are all denominated in in crypto, uh, which makes it very hard to value them. Like if you try to put that in a in a DCF, you get a uh, you know you get a, a circular error. You're trying to, um, you know, determine the thing that you're you're trying to, uh, you know, forecast the thing that is also your input, which is which is impossible. Um, uh, and then also, I just think that they are, you know, cryptos are not really assets in the sense um, that we understand equities and things to be assets because uh, they're not anybody's liability, right? There's no. Um, uh, there's no legal liability when you when you buy a crypto token. Um, there's no, uh, you don't have a claim on assets. You don't have a claim on on cash flows. Uh, it's not an asset in the in the in the sense that we understand them from traditional finance. Uh, so I just I just have uh, I kind of have a hard time um, ascribing value to them. I think those are all super valid points. I also just realized that your dog is in the background right over your shoulder and I got a little distracted uh, looking at your dog there. <laughs> Very cute. Okay, so let's 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 address some of those claims because I 
I agree with a lot of them actually, but I do have some pushback to a couple. So let's talk about the idea that this is uh, crypto's open source software. And I think on the one hand, I have I, my own thoughts are sort of divided on this subject because in one sense, I think there's quite kind of this narrative of crypto is a way to monet uh, a good way to monetize open source software, which has traditionally been extremely valuable, but very difficult to generate revenue and capture economic value. So you look at something like Wikipedia, how much value is there? I don't know. I use it every single day. I love Wikipedia. Actually, sometimes on weekends, I will literally just allow myself to go down Wikipedia rabbit holes for like three or four hours at a time. And it's a huge source of pleasure for me. Honestly, it's basically entertainment. But uh, how much money does it generate? Not an enormous amount. It's sort of like a public good. And uh, I, I take your point that from an investing standpoint, that is that really a great thing to invest in? I, I do think though that if you actually, because the, the whole idea there is that you can fork different crypto protocols, right? So as soon as you start to sniff out this idea of rent extraction, then ultimately what you're just going to do is fork it to a new chain. It's going to be great for users, but the flip side of that, it's going to be very poor for investors. I think that's true for some parts of crypto, but I don't think every protocol is just as forkable as others. There are parts of protocols that make it very difficult to frankly fork. Like if you look at something like Ethereum at this point, I find it very difficult to imagine a world where there is a significant hard fork where the value really ends up getting divided. Even if you look at previous hard forks of something like Bitcoin, I think what you generally find is that it's a it's almost like a good check and balance. The the fork ultimately is like a pretty good check and balance to make sure that you know ultimately the right people and stakeholders are making decisions for the protocol. But I don't think you really saw the economic value get divided. All of it went with the canonical Bitcoin fork, and then there were kind of these this array of pretty unsuccessful you know hard hard and soft forks for Bitcoin. Then there's also kind of if you look at on the the DAP layer of forks, there's Multicoin actually came out with a pretty good thesis, which I think is if you are managing risk, you have a protocol that's very difficult to fork. And if you are not managing risk, it's actually pretty easy to fork. So like take Uniswap versus MakerDAO as examples here. Uniswap, you've got liquidity, right? It's open source, uh, you know, V3 is open source. So anyone could just, you know, take that, uh, all of that code and create their own Uniswap. And theoretically, if Uniswap ever started to charge fees, like, you know, uh, there's been a lot of debate this year about the fee switch, then someone else could just fork it and create zero fees. And theoretically, they could steal a lot of liquidity. But Maker is different because Maker, the value is you're actually underwriting different forms of collateral. So you're managing risk in a sense there. And you actually, at least till now, right, maybe AI will eventually figure out how to do this. But right now, that means people and competency. And that's a much more difficult thing to fork as a protocol. So on the one hand, I agree with, I agree with some of that. I think some of the open sourceness of crypto ultimately makes it easy to fork and good for users and bad for investors. But I think if you also look at different pockets of crypto, it's much more difficult to fork and much in a weird way, less actually open source than, than it might look at the surface. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, that could be. Um, and I, I think uh, we just have to wait and see that how that plays out. But I guess my response to be to that generally would be like, you know, 
show me the crypto success story. Like, you know, yeah. if you look at the look at the top 20 cryptos by market cap and tell me which one of those other than Ethereum you would want to invest in, right? Like they do mm -hmm. not look like investments. Right? That is like a dog's breakfast of, of <laughs> just, you know, Ponzi-nomics and memes and silly stuff. Uh, so, you know, I would just... I would I would like to see a couple of of success stories where you could look at it and be like, you know, that's like a, you know, that looks like a business that I would want to invest in because I, I just haven't mm. seen that as of yet. On the one hand, you know, you've got sort of this uh, ecosystem of, of true believers in crypto who look, there is a lot of money on the sidelines. Like I, Andreessen basically raised a $4 billion fund right at the top, right? And you also had a, a, a number of other funds uh, actually raise a whole bunch of money that they have, I think, yet to deploy. So you could look at at uh, this coming year in crypto and say, wow, there's actually a decent amount of dry dry powder that's sitting on the sidelines and waiting to invest. But also you could say, wow, still big headwinds here. The Fed is going to continue to hike rates and you know, crypto is extremely interest rate sensitive and it doesn't really seem like there are going to be any macro tailwinds that are going to pick up crypto as a sector anytime soon. So how are you sort of feeling? I know this is where no one has a crystal ball, but how are you feeling about crypto as a sector moving into the new year? Um, yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, I think that's a good thing because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we need another, uh, macro based, uh, bull market because those are, I think are just inherently not very productive. So, you know, we really need a bull market based on utility and, and new use cases. And, uh, hopefully, you know, while, uh, uh, you know, while money is more scarce, uh, then uh, founders and builders will uh, really have to focus on on creating that those that utility and those use cases. Um, so you know, my bull case longer term for the the sector is that we you know stay in this kind of environment um, for a while. Like if we just you know if we just turn on a dime and we just rally because the the Fed is starts um, you know restarts QE. Then I, I don't think that's going to be you know productive uh, long term, and it also certainly doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Um, you know, there's the the Fed will probably stop raising rates soon, but they'll probably also keep them high for the bulk of the year, uh, mm. and it's really hard to imagine them going from QT to QE on a dime, uh, and you know is you know for. Bitcoin, at least, it's it's kind of hard to see Bitcoin having any particular great rally un until uh, money supply starts starts going up. Um, so yeah, my guess would be that uh, it's it's kind of a rocky year for crypto in twenty three. But long term, I think that would be for the best. Hmm. What about you know just as someone with a little bit more gray hair than than some of the other folks in crypto, including myself. Uh... <laughs> I, I mean, there's a compliment. I mean, there's the, the, the most gracious of compliments. Um, you know, one of the sort of narratives that you're starting to see is, oh, well, CeFi was where the big failure happened in crypto right now. And really what we need to see is the larger push to DeFi, which I could also, I could see happening. But on the other hand, I could also see, look, people have uh, the memory of a goldfish, right? A lot of times. And right now there's an enormous amount of, uh, you know, negative uh focus that's being that's being directed at CFI, but you've had blow-ups in TradFi, you know, that have basically looked exactly like this and people forget and more money comes in and then it all kind of happens all over again. So if you had to, you know, maybe weigh in on that narrative of this collapse and CFI is going to lead to greater DeFi adoption, do you think that's necessarily the case or are we just going to 
try to rebuild C5, build back better, basically, and just uh, run it back and, and do it all over again. I think there's definitely some truth to that because, uh, you know, there's evidence of, of you know, money leaving uh, leaving C5 and going into D5. But I would think that that's going to be a pretty limited trend. Uh, like, I can't imagine that people are like, I can't imagine that new money is going to go straight from TradFi into DeFi. Uh, mm-hmm. like I, I think you need to you need to have a interim step of of C five for people to get comfortable. I mean, self custody sucks. Like I don't I hate self custody. I don't like I don't like having assets in a wallet. It's just that's just terrifying to me. Um, <clears throat> so I mean, like self custody needs to be uh, needs to be resolved before people go uh, um, you know genuinely DeFi. And even then, I still can't imagine you know people going. And on uh, mass from straight from TradFi into into DeFi, um, but I think that's fine. Like I think maybe the the industry needs to grow more organically. Like you know when I started a bit over a year ago, it seemed like the the biggest theme was uh, you know when are the inst- institutionals coming and when when are the institutions coming? Every everybody wanted the institutions to come in and buy Bitcoin and buy ETH and and you know and and re-rate all of these these crypto tokens. Um, but I think that was the wrong thing to be hoping for. Like we should have been, we should have been rooting for all of those institutions to come in and start using DeFi. Uh, just the institutions just coming in and buying crypto is, was not helpful. It was in retrospect, it was, it was counterproductive. Um, uh, so I think, you know, the thing we should be rooting for is that, uh, you know, builders, uh, you know, build utility and create use cases and that institutional investors come in and start using the protocols uh, rather than just, just, you know, buying up all the tokens. Mm. Do you, do you have a sense of where that might ultimately end up being? So for, for Bitcoin, really the only thing that you can do there for, for better or worse, this might change in the future, but you really only can buy it. It doesn't seem to have much utility in the land of crypto. And you can sort of see that in the, in the amount of transaction fees uh, that, that Bitcoin generates versus comparable networks like Ethereum. But you know, where do you see institutions actually starting to use some of these crypto protocols? I guess the most obvious area would be DeFi. But I mean, is there another place that you see it intersecting? Or where, where do you see that actual use case um, for, for institutions coming from? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the two obvious ones would be uh, real world assets and and just uh, you know borrowing. Um, so you know, it's DeFi is kind of DeFi it, rates have, have flipped right now. It's cheaper to borrow on DeFi and and more expensive to borrow in TradFi, um, whereas it was the opposite for the the longest time. Um, so it could be that um, that you know real world borrowers come to DeFi because it's just cheaper to borrow there. Um, mm. And then the other one would be if uh, you know if we can get real real world assets uh, tokenized and on chain. Um, then, then that that can be a you know a use case for everybody, um, and I think like you know we we never talk about um, like J.P. Morgan coin or or whatever because you can't trade them and you can't do them yourself. But uh, you know there's I think there's a case to be made that uh, institutions will will over the next couple of years will get accustomed to uh, T plus zero settlement and. Uh, you know, uh, lending and borrowing intraday and stuff like that, which they can only do on on blockchain rails. 
Um, mm. So maybe they'll get comfortable with that and then they'll, they'll, you know, uh, see that they can do the same in, in DeFi and start using those protocols more. But it's really, I think it's hard to predict. I think the, the, the best bull case for crypto at the moment, I think, is that we're uh, in the late 1990s um, uh, stage of where the internet was, where we're, we're building the infrastructure rails right now, and we don't know what they're going to be used for. You know, we didn't know in 1999, we didn't know that that uh, Facebook and WhatsApp and, and all these things were going to be. Uh, was how the internet was going to be used. Uh, and I think the, the bull case for crypto is that you know, we're, we're building the rails right now and we don't know how they're going to be used. I've got a, I've got a random, um, maybe, maybe out of the blue question to ask you here to just, to just end things, but I'm not sure how much you've been paying attention to Elon Musk and his goings on, on, on Twitter. What's your, what's your opinion on that? I almost, I would love to just get your, your sort of human thought on what you think about him taking over Twitter and now he's sort of banning some of these journalists and he just did a vote yesterday. I don't know if you saw like, like, should I step down from Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. I'm increasingly looking at this and it's just from the outside looks so erratic. And I'm just, I'm just very curious, you know, what you, what you think about all this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've, uh, I used to be a big fan of Elon Musk cause I, I thought he was like doing huge things to save humanity, you know, solve climate change with Tesla and uh and uh you know ensure the future of humanity with spacex and uh and fight the robot takeover with that uh that mind machine interface company that he's got Neuralink. Uh, so those i think i thought those were all like incredible things uh, but he does seem to have just completely jumped the shark with with twitter i don't know i don't really understand it i think uh you know, sometimes in life, one thing leads to another. I don't think he ever really intended to buy Twitter. He just said something silly. And then, he, and then you know, it just got out of control. And all of a sudden, he on Twitter. And now he doesn't know what to do with it. Um, and it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't totally surprise me if, like, he held a vote on Twitter. Like, you know, do you want me to be, you know, the CEO? And people say no. And then he just, like he just shuts it down or something. <laughs> he just like, he just gets rid of it because, and takes it, you know, eats his $30 billion loss or whatever, because, you know, and just because he realizes, okay, this is out of control and I made a mistake and I'm going to, I'm going to cut my losses and go back to uh, building rockets and, and, and car batteries and stuff. Hmm. I agree with that take. It does look like he's bitten off a little bit more than he can chew. And it, it is, I mean, people have pointed out it's very different, skill set of building rockets and and teslas are very manufacturing heavy businesses and he's proven extremely adept at, at doing that and you know twitter social media is a whole other beast so well, yeah, one thing that seems i don't i don't think i've seen anybody comment on this but that that purchase price it was 5420 which is a meme right like mm. like I think the, I've, it seems like he just meant it as a joke <laughs> in the very <laughs> beginning, he meant it as a joke and now yeah. all, and that, that joke is going to wind up costing him like $30 billion, uh, which is just, just crazy. I hope he got a good laugh out of it then That's <laughs> more than I've ever paid for a joke. I'll tell you that. Um, Byron, this has been a ton of fun doing this with you, my friend, uh, any just closing thoughts on, you know, what you want the viewers to go into 2023 with or commentary on this year or uh or just show the newsletter i mean however you want to however you want to end this uh i don't know i guess by uh 
I would end it just by saying that uh, I still think crypto is a lot of fun. Like for all, for as big of a as big of a disaster as 2022 is, uh, crypto is still fun and interesting, and much more so than than tradfi. So I would uh, just encourage people not to give up on it. I think that's a good that's a good sentiment to end this on. So Byron, this has been uh, a ton of fun, and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, cheers.